0: Lord, as we uh, look in the Scripture this morning, uh, it's with dependence on you. Father, I know we could have the best oratory or the worst. Uh, it's your Spirit that gives life, that opens up our minds and our hearts to hear and see the things you mean us to. And so we simply submit ourselves to you, ask you to give us open hearts, open ears to what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs uh, 7 On your study sheet there, Proverbs 7 in large measure is a father telling his son, Junior, a story. And it's a uh, cautionary tale. And the story goes like this. Dad says to Junior, I was standing in the house one day and I looked out the window and this is what I saw. And I saw a young guy, maybe he looked like he was from the country, But whatever, as soon as I saw him, I know this guy doesn't know much. He looked simple or naive. And he walks through the street. And as he does, a woman approaches him. And she's decked out. And she's gorgeous. And she's attractive. She's also very bold. Because she goes right up to this young guy and kisses him. And she tells him, I've been looking for you. And he's never met her before. And you can imagine, he's stunned. He's, what's going on? I've been looking for you. And she says, you know, today I was at the temple. I paid my vows. And what that means is I've got all the food from the offerings at home. So I've got a feast at home. And I want you to come home with me and enjoy this feast. And by the way, also, my bed is all decked out. It's got the best linens from Egypt. It smells good. It's perfumed and we'll have a feast, and then we'll make love all night long. Yes, it's true I'm married, but you don't have to worry about that because my husband's gone. It's weeks. He won't be here. You can come in, you can enjoy all this and me, and you'll be able to get away with it, says dad to Junior. And dad continues, and he says, this simple guy there standing in his story, he's wavering. He's simple and he's naive. He doesn't have the kind of moral wisdom that Proverbs tells us gives us success in life. He's wavering. Should I? Shouldn't I? Sounds good. Maybe too good to be true. What do I do? But dad says in a moment, he follows her. And in that moment that he capitulates, the text says he's like an ox led to the slaughter. You know on the farm, if you want to get the ox where you slaughter him, you know what you do? You You take the feed bag and you lead him in. And the text says he's just like an ox led to the slaughter. There's another symbol there where it says it's as if an arrow is pierced through his side. And he's dead, but he doesn't know it. And this is the way this text winds down. Verses 24 to 27, he says, Now therefore, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many are the victims she has cast down. Numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol or to the grave, descending to the chambers of death. Dad tells Junior this story because he says, Listen, you've got to avoid, not this singular woman, Women you aren't married to. All this temptation, it looks good in the moment, and what does it bring? It brings death. That's the introduction this morning to the seventh of the ten words or the ten commandments. If you remember seven, this is the seventh into ten, uh, moral, moral laws. And if you remember, we said these things, the ten words bring up, they were true before the ten commandments were given. They're laid out in the law, in the Ten Commandments, and they're true for us today. And if you guys are anything like me, you know, as studying through this, teaching through it, hearing this again, uh, I realize each week new ways in which I'm sinful. And we've said this, but it bears repeating uh, the law of the New Testament makes clear, it points out our sin. And the thing isn't that we say we're going to work up and make ourselves better because we, we can't. There's better solutions, which we'll talk about more fully in a little bit. But they bring up the fact that we're sinful, that in all these different ways we blow it. you know. And thankfully, we're not like Israel under that law, thinking to ourselves, trying to live up to the law. We simply say on the front end, Lord, we know your word per- points out our own sinfulness, all the ways we don't make it. All the ways we blow it before you, thank God we live under the new covenant. Christ's blood atones for our sins. And we do come to God for forgiveness for sure, but we have a new energy to live life. So remember that as we look at the seventh word this morning. Exodus 20 verse 14, another short phrase, you shall not commit adultery. By the way, the Hebrew in this very clear, no adultery. There's no ambiguity on the term. That's all it means. So, plainly, we're not to have sex with someone else's spouse. Also, we're not to take a person sexually who isn't ours to take. And then you remember, as we've said, at least last week under murder, the command is presumed to include all the lesser things that would fall under that command. So when we said don't murder, it also meant don't do harm against other people. So when we say don't commit adultery, we're also saying that sex outside of marriage in whatever forum or venue you can think of, that's all prohibited. Under the general command, don't commit adultery. Uh, This is a huge issue, by the way, in both the Old and New Testaments for a variety of reasons, both, both physically, really, but also spiritually as well, you'll see. In the Old Testament, just like the other commands we've already looked at, adultery carried the death penalty. You see that in Leviticus 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Death penalty, you see the same thing, Deuteronomy 22, 22. It's always portrayed as foolish, a great unfaithfulness, and deadly. Deadly. Proverbs 6, one chapter earlier than the opening, Proverbs 7 says this, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Could I pick up coals from the fire, hold them to my chest, and not have the clothing I'm wearing burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her, will not go unpunished. In other words, you know, the temptation is to think sexually or otherwise, we can do something and get away from it, get away with it. And Solomon says, no, no, no. No more can you get away with sexual sin than if you literally held fire to your chest and your clothes, it would burn you. There's no sense, there's no hope that we can sin sexually and get away with it. The thought, it's not there. It's not a possibility. Later on in verses 32 and 33, the one who commits adultery with a woman, and by the way, the texts generally speak to men. It was a man's world. Speak to men. This is true whichever way you cut this, men or women. The one who commits adultery with a woman or a man is lacking sense. And in the story in chapter 7, when it says the guy is naive, it means he has no moral prudence. He doesn't know how to live successfully. He lacks sense or heart. His heart is uninstructed. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find. His reproach will not be blotted out. Solomon and the father in Proverbs wants us to know you can't commit this sin and not have negative things happen in your life. It's simply a given. Whatever the brief pleasure it offers, it brings long-term regret and death. Now, just as in the other uh, ten words, you see Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, up the ante on this one too. this probably better known than some of the others, but in matthew five twenty seven and twenty eight you have heard that it was said, this is through the law, this is exodus don't commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart, so just like murder, here Jesus says. It's the mindset, it's in the imagination, it's in our thoughts that the sin begins. And so when we give ourselves to murder in our mind, Jesus says, you're a murderer. When we give ourselves to lust in our mind, we're guilty, he says, of adultery. So to lust for someone else's spouse in our mind or in our heart is to be guilty, at least in spirit, of this command. This would also include, though, I think this is important, to remember and to point out, uh, adultery itself, the sex act, that's the last thing done, but you don't get there in one single bound. It's, it's one step after another that gets you there. So also things like uh, simply what sometimes we consider innocent flirting with another a person of the opposite sex in a way that's not in their benefit or in ours, or emotional relationships in which we're trying to get from someone else that we're not married to, what God only means for us to have either from Him or for our spouse. All of these things we'd be talking about this morning, being careful with all of those, not just the physical act. Uh, Romans 13.9, I won't linger on, but there Paul quotes elements of the law, don't murder, don't commit adultery, etc. And he says, winds up, they're all summed up in this rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Making love, in adultery is very unloving. Making love, you know, that's the term. When it's adultery, when it's illicit, it's not love. It's not loving. It's unloving. We are hating our neighbor when we commit adultery. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, the context there uh, in Corinth and our cultures are so similar with the corinthian and with the roman world of the day of the new testament if someone in paul's day called you or me a corinthian they were saying that you were grossly immoral the corinthians were noted for their immorality and paul's talking to a culture a lot like ours in which immorality it was just a given in their day and their time it was just a given it was pervasive it was everywhere and so, in the context of sex with a prostitute, Paul says this flee immorality. You know, sometimes we stand and fight, but when it has to do with sexual immorality, the scripture is clear you don't stand and fight, you turn tail and you run. You get away. Flee immorality, he says. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body's a temple? Of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, you're not your own, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So this trades on the theme out of Genesis where it says the two will become one flesh, and then later in the New Testament, what God has joined together, man should not separate. Paul says sex is unique, sexual sin is unique because it binds people together in a way nothing else does. And Paul here says, If you're a Christian, you're taking the Holy Spirit of God who's in you and you're bringing him into this unholy union. And Paul's saying, how can you do this? The holy and the unholy, you can't put them together. You belong to Christ, you have the Spirit, avoid immorality in whatever form it might come. Now, both the Greek and the New Testament and the Hebrew, the words for adultery, they just mean that, adultery. But when you translate to the English, it's a little different. So we've got two Latin terms here to come up with our term, adultery, add and alter. We add and we alter. So we put something with something else, and in the doing, we change it. So you know, if we use the term today, adulterate, we mean that we take something of high intrinsic value and we debase it. We change it. It's never for the better. To adulterate is always to pollute something. So the English use of the term adultery is you take something that's pure, you add some foreign element to it, and in the doing you pollute what was otherwise pure and good. You debase it. You make the holy unholy. That's our thought of adultery. Marriage and sex were created by God. They're inherently clean and desirable and appropriate. Sex is God's idea. You know, the culture always thinks that the cultures come up with sex. No, God came up with sex. Read Genesis. It's clear. That's God's design. It's God's deal. In God's doing, it's appropriate and it's desirable. But adultery takes an impurity... And it adds it into what is otherwise holy. And that's what we're avoiding. You know, in our culture and in the world generally, there's a myth that's assumed to be fact or truth that if there isn't some illicit element to sex, it's not as exciting as it could be. If you're not sleeping with somebody else's wife or if you're both unmarried, if you're not checking up or hooking up for a night, somehow you're missing out. Because married sex isn't as exciting as other avenues of sex. But, you know, if you look at studies that have been done in the past, married people, the dull set, faithful marriage partners to each other, have more sex than any other group, and it's more satisfying sex than any other group. And that that shouldn't surprise us because it's marriage within the fences that God put up to protect it. So the truth is, it's folks who are faithful to each other in marriage that have the most satisfying sex life. And God is not bashful. I think sometimes as Christians we think we need to be. You know, you read the Song of Songs. You read Proverbs 5. You read Genesis, the creation account. God is not bashful. You know, all of sex, that's his idea. That's not ours. It's not some dirty thing. We do in the dark corner. No, it's something to celebrate. God means it for good. You know, in fact, um, it has this cementing impact on two people, on a husband and wife that nothing else does. You know, sex is uniquely powerful. Joining people in marriage, it bonds them together in a way nothing else does. Of no other relationship does it say two become one. It doesn't happen. One plus one is two. No, but in marriage, one plus one is one. It's this new entity. And sex is the biggest part of that or a large part of it. So sex is good and it's really a powerful thing. So, you know, just like dynamite, if we're building roads or bridges, dynamite's a great thing. You know, if it's where we want it, doing what we want it to do, it's a great thing. But you take it outside of those kind of venues and uses, and dynamite's just a very, very destructive thing and that's like sex, in the place where God's meant it to be used, it's incredibly helpful, healthy, pure, and desirable. You take it outside of there, and it's incredibly destructive. And the world in which we live says it's absolutely backwards to that. Now, last week we talked about King David primarily related to murder, but of course adultery was part of that whole story as well. And it led to the unraveling of David's own family. Do you remember God commuted the death sentence but said, death, the element of death, will now be at work in your own family. And so it was guilt, shame, fear, disease, broken relationships, financial poverty are some of the ways death follows adultery or immorality broadly. Adultery brings death to the parties directly involved and it brings death to the lives of those around them. And guys, this isn't if and it's not sometimes, it's always. There's no way around it. It's a given. Uh, Philip Ryken writes this in his book on the Ten Commandments written in stone. A man who will betray his wife or a woman who will betray her husband will betray anyone and anything. Adultery is treason against the family, and God hates it. And I love that phrase. Adultery is treason. And think about this for just a second. Remember that in the creation account, we are created in the image of God. And God is a plurality, a trinity. And God means for us and for our relationships to mirror this honor within the Trinity, the honor with which each member of the Trinity shows to each other. So something like John's Gospel, Jesus says, the Father loves the Son. And He says, I only do those things that honor the Father. And the Spirit's going to come and He's not even going to talk about Himself. He's going to talk about me. And our relationships, and especially marriage and the family, they're meant to reflect this complementary loving that you see within the Trinity among us in our marriage, in our families. That's what we're supposed to see. The thought that one member of the Trinity would betray another member of the Trinity is impossible, but that's what we're supposed to reflect. So immorality in any venue, and adultery especially, it breaks the mold, if you will, of the image of God we're meant to display and enjoy. And one of God's key characteristics is in the Old Testament, the term is kesed, and it gets translated faithfulness, loyal love, steadfast love, second to holy. This is the term used most often in the Old Testament to describe God. He's a God of loyal love. And adultery is treason against that person, against those people we're in this special relationship with. And God in the Trinity loves to honor. Each member honors the other. And God's this God of loyal love. And I think adultery has become easy and immorality in our culture has become easy because our minds don't know what holy looks like. And we don't see that it's this great treason. We don't lift it that high. We think, we say to ourselves, it's no big deal. Immorality is no big deal. Adultery is no big deal. No, it is a big deal. It's huge. And I love Rikens' phrase, treason against the family. That's why God hates it. Nothing good can ever come from it. Al Mohler writes of it this way in his book, Words from the Fire. If we cannot maintain trust and fidelity within the small and inherently meaningful universe of marriage, <clears throat> excuse me, how can we trust each other in commerce, in politics, in business, in culture, in life. A culture that embraces adultery accepts within itself a poison pill for every other relationship, a toxic substance that threatens every other commitment. Adultery is primal in its attack upon all that is honorable and good and true and faithful, unraveling precious bonds and commitments. Adultery in the mind and interactions pollutes what's holy, it breaks faithfulness, and it brings death with it. Now, if you go to a wedding, or if you do a study, a Bible study on marriage, you're going to end up in Ephesians 5. and sort of the longest of the New Testament passages <clears throat> on husbands and wives. And you know if you read there, husbands love your wives. Wives submit or respect your husbands. But you also see there that Paul takes this marriage relationship of a husband and wife, and he pivots on it because he says, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. And later he says, this thing that I'm telling you about, it's a mystery, but I'm not talking about husbands and wives now. I'm talking about Christ and the church. So Paul uses the marriage relationship to talk about this similar relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church. That's with us collectively it's with us as individuals as well. So that adultery is not only a theme for us in the relationships we have horizontally, but an adult, adultery is a huge theme in the Scriptures spiritually or vertically in God's relationship with His covenant people. So Christ is working to make us this pure spotless bride. He has that kind of heart towards us. And like a bride or like a fiancé, the intention is that we have this kind of undistracted devotion and affection for Christ. That Christ so singularly holds our hearts and our minds and our imaginations that nothing and no one else can take his place. And that we're not seeking things that only Christ can ultimately give us in lesser entities or courses. So it's possible to have spiritual adultery as well as physical adultery. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, this is in the context of marriage, and the Corinthians had lots of questions. Do we get married? Do we stay single? If my spouse is not Christian, do I stay married, etc.? In the context of Paul saying, hey, I would encourage you to stay single, he says this, I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. For Paul, that's the, the highest goal. It's that we as believers have undistracted devotion to Christ, that we see Him so clearly, that He is singularly so filling our minds, our hearts, and our emotions that ultimately He's all we think about, all we see. That's what Paul's after. That was Paul's life. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, when Paul's been talking about pseudo-apostles, he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Simple, pure love, devotion to Christ. Paul says, that's what I'm after. In fact, he says, I betrothed you to Christ. For guys, this is uh, perhaps sometimes a difficult take. Think like a woman getting ready for her wedding. I'm not sure that always works for us. But the the thought of that singular desire for the other person you're engaged to, that's it. That singular desire for the other person. Does Christ have the full measure of our devotion? Do we pour our affections out on illicit lovers? Now... You know, again, the Bible is quite frank, surprisingly frank, I think, to people who have never read it. Adulterers, harlots, and whores, that's the language of unfaithfulness in the Old Testament when God indicts the nation of Israel for spiritual unfaithfulness. Ezekiel 16 is a long and it's a very graphic passage portraying Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness in the language of a husband and wife. And this this text is semi-pornographic. And in the English translations, you'll miss uh, some of what was uh, very crude, uh, but these were God's words, uh, talking about male anatomy. Because he wants to make the point that he said, my people, they're like a whore. And not only does she practice illicit sex, but she actually pays other people to come and sleep with her. And the language is, as I said, it's semi-pornographic because God's getting down and real with Israel. And he says to them, when you were like a baby after birth in your blood and unclean and unwanted, I picked you up and I made you my own. And when you grew up, we took vows together and I made you my people. And I gave you all this wealth and all these good things. And you have turned around and you've spent what I gave you to get illicit lovers to come join you. Spiritual adultery, very graphic because God's making the point. When Israel went to other gods and other nations instead of him, God said, you're like a whore. You don't just go have affairs, you pay men to come and have sex with you. It was debasing, it was polluted. Now, if I told you today that it's possible for us to practice spiritual adultery and you say, well, uh, what does that look like? And, you know, you look at Israel and you say, well, spiritual adultery, it was worshiping other gods. It was idolatry or it was relying on other nations instead of trusting God. We sort of look down our nose at the ancients because they were so foolish. We think to think that a piece of wood or a stone was actually a God that could save them, but they weren't that stupid. Uh, Sometimes we're we're the stupid ones in this equation, which we're trying to get a handle on this stuff. So if you went to the pagan shrine in Paul's day or in Moses' day, guys, this this was the party. This was clubbing. This was sex, drugs, rock and roll. This was sex of any kind you wanted. This was good food, music. That's what idolatry was. So when we think they bowed down the statues and they thought that was it, Idolatry was always coupled with immorality. The idol temple is where you went to have a good time. I think that describes our culture today. I think the same kind of things go on not only in our culture, but among Christians, among those professing Christ. It's the party scene. That was idolatry. So spiritual adultery is certainly available to us as well. In what ways are we taking our affections? and pouring them out on someone or something less than Christ, those affections that only belong to him. You know, for guys, sex, physically sex, or sex in the imagination, is huge. And of course, in our pornographic age, it's bigger than it's ever been before because it's more available. That's a kind of spiritual adultery where we're trying to get a pleasure in our mind that Christ, only Christ ultimately can fill or shunning our wife for some illicit image. That's a kind of spiritual adultery. For women, adultery of the heart and the emotions, I'm thinking romance novels, soap operas, etc. You know, men generally gravitate towards the physical sex as a physical act in the mind or or uh, in action. Women generally, sex is something that's much more emotional. And so the default in a kind of spiritual adultery tends not necessarily to be physical tends to be more emotional. That's why soap operas and the romance novels are such a big deal. Affairs of the mind and heart. For any and all of us, spiritual adultery constitutes anyone and anything we look to for the intimacies and satisfactions that can ultimately come only from the Lord himself. And you can see here just by definition... Spiritual adultery is another form of idolatry as well. They're pretty much the same thing. Let me say that again. Spiritual adultery constitutes anything or anyone we look to for the intimacies and satisfactions that can ultimately only come from the Lord Himself. So besides sex, emotional or otherwise, um, a certain kind of success can become both our idol and our means of spiritual adultery. Popularity among others food, using food as a God substitute. All of these things, almost anything, can constitute spiritual adultery if it's used illicitly. Now, under the law, you killed adulterers. Uh, We don't do that today. That's a good thing. Uh, But we do want to kill adultery. We want to put adultery to death. Now, God has given us in the New Covenant a better way to avoid sin than just a list of do's and don'ts. Don't is good. Don't will get you some down the road, but it won't get us all the way, at least not in our minds for sure. So in the New Testament, one of the things I want to suggest is just this thought of putting on the New. If you've got a study sheet, you've got a list there of some verses you know, as Christians, uh, we've got an old sinful nature and sin is all it can do. But we've got a new nature that's Christ's own life and all it does is righteousness. And so ultimately for our sins, the thing to do is to put off the old and is to put on the new. And the New Testament talks about this in spades. So in Romans thirteen fourteen, Paul there says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of getting up in the morning and putting on a shirt or a jacket Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Get away from it. Flee it. Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self. Put on the full armor of God. Ephesians 6.11, put on the new self again. Colossians 3.12, put on love. Colossians 3.14. Part of us avoiding physical, mental, or spiritual immorality is simply by putting on that new nature that is ours in Christ. Because it does right. It's holy. It's good. It's just walking in the new nature which God has given us. God didn't clean up our old adultering self. He crucified it with Christ and he gave us a new nature, the life of Christ. When we put on that new holy life, we keep our old sinful desires in the place of death. That's the first thing. Guys, this is the most effective thing we do. There's other things to do for sure, but we need to start there. There's also, it's important to remember that there's forgiveness and there's things we can do very practically to avoid this sin. So related to forgiveness, like all other sins, breaking this seventh command, spiritually, physically, mentally, it's sin, it falls short of God's standard. But there's forgiveness. We go to God, we confess our sin, and he forgives us. You know, if you go to the Old Testament book of Hosea, you've got a story that's a graphic story again. You know, I love this about God that He is so not like the world paints Him. You know, our Father is a very creative person. So He tells His man, Hosea, Hey, go marry this woman. Well, this woman's a prostitute. Wow, such a deal. You go marry Gomer... And he does. And, and then, by the way, she's going to be unfaithful to you. And she is. And then he tells Hosea, you go back. She's in the slave market. And you go back and you redeem her. You buy her back. And Hosea lives out with Gomer, God's relationship with Israel. Because God uses that to say, just as Israel has been faithless, I remain faithful. And I'm going to redeem her back. My love is redeeming. It's faithful. It's faithful. It never quits. It never ends. And though she's polluted herself with every other guy around, I'm going to redeem her. She's not beyond my redemption. I'm going to bring her back. And he does. You go to the New Testament in John 8, the end of chapter 7 into 8, you got this great story of a woman caught in the act of adultery. And can you imagine her fearfulness? Uh, this is for another day, but you know, the whole thing's a set up to get Jesus. So she's caught in the intimacy of sex in her home. She's brought out into the light of day, brought into this circle of men and accused of adultery. And the Pharisees and the leaders say, the law commands this woman to be stoned. What do you say? The law did command the woman to be stoned. Absolutely accurate. Absolutely right. Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I'll grant you the law. I'll just say this, this. These are the folks who should carry it out. And, of course, everyone slinks away. And Jesus says to the woman, you know, where are those who accuse you? Well, they're all gone. So he says, go and sin no more. I don't hold this against you. I don't accuse you either. Jesus forgives this woman. He's, it's wrong. Don't do it. Go and sin no more. And he's going to pay for her sins. By the way, shortly when he dies for her sins also on the cross. So there's forgiveness. There's also prevention. Uh, Spouses, if you're married, work at your marry and enjoy each other in a relationship in which the intoxicating sex Solomon refers to is the norm. And I say this having, I'm under no illusion, I know marriage is hard work. But I know it's possible. And it's humbling and it requires forgiveness and there's lots of pain in it. But the Proverbs 5 and the Song of Songs, that's what we should aim for. That's what God means for us. So if you're married, you should have a goal for your marriage to look like that. And you should feel about sex with your spouse. It's intoxicating. We're so fully vulnerable and giving to each other. I couldn't imagine that could be any better with anybody else. It's so good what we have here with each other. Christians should have the best relationships, period, They should have the best sex lives too because we know who we belong to. We've got this ability to be vulnerable with each other because we're forgiven. We don't have to put on faces. So if you're married, this should be your goal. You should have a wonderful sex life and a a full marriage life in which sex, intoxicating sex, is the norm. If our hearts are full with each other, there's not much room for third parties. Men... Speaking in the context of men with chests, if you remember a little more than a year ago, we said that we wanted to take about a year and a half and we wanted to particularly call men up to be the kind of Christ-like men we're meant to be. And we used the term from C.S. Lewis, we wanted to be men with chests. And that meant that we had a Christ-informed moral center of gravity that ruled over our head and our emotions And this is another venue. This is a huge area in which we need to be men with chests. That we're giving ourselves fully to our spouse. That we're saying no to things that are going to tempt us and lead us astray. We need to be like Daniel. We need to draw lines in the sand. You read Daniel chapter 1. You see that when he went to Babylon, he'd already made up his mind. He would not pollute himself in Nebuchadnezzar's court. We need to draw lines in the sand. This is places we won't go, things we won't do being alone with gals, internet use, whatever it is, we have to draw lines in the sand that say we will not go beyond this point. That's part of being men with chests. Put our, put our heart and our soul into loving our Savior and our wife. For women, get rid of the romance novels, unfavorable comparisons of your husband to other men, thinking and choosing to believe the best of your spouse. We could go on and on on some of these things. Have a great marriage. Have a great marriage. Uh, parents, lots of parents here, you know, you have the privilege of modeling marriage and God's call to intimacy to your children. So are they seeing, because they live in your home, in your household, are they seeing what God intends for a marriage? Do they see a great marriage, something that they say, when I grow up, that's what I want? And do they know enough, not too much, but do they know enough to know mom and dad have a great sex life or have a sex life, even? so that they know that sex is a good thing given by God to be honored and protected in the relationship of marriage, but it's not some dirty thing that's left in a corner that the world does and the church doesn't talk about. Are your kids growing up with a healthy understanding and attitude about the role of sex and marriage? They should. Uh, We're disabling our kids. We're setting them up for failure if they don't, if they don't know that because they live in our household Uh, Young men and young ladies, I'm thinking uh, mosaic age, middle school and up, have you drawn your lines in the sand? Have you already determined the things you will not do, the places you will not go, the kind of relationships you will not engage in, that you're going to look after the reputation of those young ladies or those young men, that you're not going to intentionally put stumbling blocks in the way of other young men and other young ladies? You know, you're entering that stage of life where this is really critical. You know, when kids go to college, kids, young men and young ladies go to college, the first two weeks are seen as critical on whether they hold on to their faith and keep their lines drawn in the sand or whether they simply capitulate to the larger culture they're entering in. So if we haven't already determined what we won't do, if we haven't put those fences up now, young guys and young gals, it'll be too late later. You have to already have that in your mind. This is what I won't do. This is where I won't go. These are my standards and I'm not caving. Uh, spring is here. No winter ever, right? Earliest spring ever after a no winter, winter. So I was mowing my yard yesterday. And you know, last year was brutal on my lawn. And I'll bet on your lawn too. We got so little rain last year. So I've got a yard this year, that I have areas that are filled with weeds. And I've got bare spots all over my yard. And I don't like this because I like a nice lawn. You know, my idea of a lawn was it's green and it's all grass. And I just mow it once in a while and life is good. So I'm cutting my lawn yesterday and I've got all these weeds I've got to take care of. And you know, anybody will tell you, the best way to have a healthy lawn with no weeds is to have a Healthy lawn. You keep grass, healthy grass growing, you know what? Weeds, they hardly stand a chance coming up. The weeds come in when the lawn is not in good shape, and the weeds come up in the bare areas. So if you want to keep the weeds out, you have a healthy lawn. And if we want to keep the weeds out spiritually, we have a healthy lawn. We have a healthy, vital, spiritual life. We have a healthy, vital marriage. If you do that, most of the work's done. But you know what? It does take work. I'm always amazed how much work my lawn takes. See, because in the spring, you've got to plug it or aerate it. You've got to put the fertilizer down, the pre-emergent, with the fertilizer. Then you've got to water it if it doesn't rain. You've got to mow it, keep it clipped to the right height, fertilize it again once or twice in the year. You get my picture. It's work. But for the work, I keep the weeds out. And if we'll work just a bit, just regularly, at our marriages, at our minds, at our attitudes, we can keep most of the weeds out. It's not even hard. Not even hard. Easy, just by keeping a healthy line. Let me wind down. I'm probably past my time already, but let me bang my drum slowly again here on the things that will help you and I keep our lawns green, so to speak, keep the weeds out a little bit more easily, spiritually, mentally, and physically, The first is this, a daily time in the Scriptures, read your Bibles, Uh, not because it's uh, what you're supposed to do, but because when you do, you see God more clearly, you know Him better, you know what His priorities are. You know, there's nothing like studying your Bible to get conviction and to see truth. And then someone doesn't have to say, here's a list of do's and don'ts, because you get it. You know things that no one else can convince you otherwise of if you read your Bible. Guys, if all we're doing is getting God's Word secondhand, anybody will sell you anything. When you read the Scriptures for yourself, when the Spirit makes that truth real to you, it's yours and no one can take it from you. And that's what we need. We need that kind of connection to God where I know these things are true, Lord. I know who you are. I know I'm saved. I know I'm forgiven. And no one can convince me otherwise because I got that from you in your word. The other is prayer. This is not because we have a list of people that we told we would pray for, though it's good to pray for each other. You know, these are all these spiritual disciplines, you know, that we avoid. We talk about like we really do them, but we don't. These spiritual disciplines, they're they're fertilizing the yard. They're watering the lawn. When we pray, when we slow down in our life enough to just talk to God, fellowship with Him, talk to Him about the things on our mind, yes, talk to Him about other people in our life, absolutely. When we quiet down, we hear from God in ways we don't otherwise. We connect with Him just like we would anyone else because we're spending time with Him. We're talking. Wow, that's relationship. And that's what prayer is. It's simply conversation. Fellowship with other Christians. I'm thinking here, not just, but primarily Sunday morning. Uh, Through the years, in the uh, 30-plus years, Kath and I have been Christians, I can't tell you how many times it's simply been in the corporate setting of the church during teaching or during worship in which God speaks to me in a way He has not in other venues. You know, Jesus said, two or more gather together, I show up. And we count on that. And we get with God's people and God shows up, guys, and we hear from Him in ways we won't. And He speaks to us and it's genuine and it's real. And it binds us to Him. And it makes us and it keeps us healthy. And the last is service to those outside Christ's church. You know, because God loved the world, He gave His Son. And the better we know Jesus, the more we know He loves others and He has a redeeming love that seeks to bring them in. And we should be about serving others in Christ's name because to know Christ and to love like He did and does is to serve others. And when we do, we gain Christ's heart and His affections. God means us to enjoy the best of each other and of Him. And in order to do that, there has to be a life-giving exclusivity. Otherwise, we pollute the holy relationships and for a moment's pleasure invite a lifetime of regret, and God really has a better way. Father, thanks that you've redeemed us, uh, not only initially, Lord, in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us, but Lord, thanks that you're buying us back every day, that you're forgiving our sins, that you're calling to us through words of love, not giving up on us. And Lord, might we have that kind of singular dedication to our spouses, to our children, to those in the body, to those outside the body, Lord. This singular passion to know and honor Christ, this singular passion to represent Christ to the world. God, would you help us to be faithful to you? Would you help our marriages to be rich and so full and our families so full, Lord, and our relationships with you so full that there's no room, Lord, for the impurities, for adulterating, the good things You've given us. God, help us to see Christ more clearly and love Him. In Jesus' name, amen.